The following story contains sensitive and disturbing details. It's not suitable for children. Okay. All right, Dick, count, count one more time for me. One, two, three, four, cool. five. Sounds good. good. Okay. All right. So Dick- By the summer of 1976, three children, three girls from Southeast Michigan, Cynthia Kadju, Sheila Srock, and Jane Louise Allen were found murdered. We were not told by our law enforcement authorities that they thought one person or one group of people were responsible for all of these. We were being told that these were isolated incidents. They were working on them and, and, and to be careful, but there still was no child killer out there that was a serial type of killer. This is WJR News Director Dick Hafner. In the late 70s, he was one of the many reporters covering the story. So our communities were on edge. However, we thought our authorities were solving these crimes and it would all go away. This is Mike Stebbins, Mark Stebbins' older brother. We'd play football on our front lawns. Yeah. So you you and Mark are very close? Uh, At the beginning, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about what kind of kid Mark was. Uh, He was a good kid and, uh, you know, as as we went through life, you know, and we played our baseball at the park and played catch out in the front yard and everything was good, you know, and then as life goes on, you kind of drift apart because of your age and whatever. He goes and gets his friends. I got mine. And he decided to start collecting military memorabilia or, you know, whatever he could get, with whatever money he had, you know? Welcome back to Shattered. I'm Jeremy Allen, and this is our third season, episode two. If you haven't heard episode one of Child Killer, I suggest you start there. Sunday, February 15th, 1977. It's early afternoon. At an American Legion Hall in Ferndale, which is a city just north of Detroit, Mark and Mike Stebbins, are hanging out. Their mom works at the hall. Mike Stebbins was there in a pool tournament, but Mark, well, he was about to head home. The 12-year-old wanted to catch a movie on TV. I think it was 30 seconds over Tokyo because he was a war boss. Hydraulic pressure, okay. Brake pressure. Okay. So Mark leaves the hall, heads home on foot. The Stebbins live just a few blocks away from the Legion Hall. Mark's older brother, Mike, stayed behind to play in his pool tournament, and so did their mom, who was working. It was a while later that older brother, Mike, left for home. When I got there and he wasn't there, it's like, something's wrong with this picture. And then my mom called from the American Legion. She asked me, is Mark there? I'm like, no. And she's like, well, I don't understand that. She asked me, can you call? 
some of his friends and see if they've seen him, which I did. Nobody had seen him. There was no sign of Mark in the three-quarter mile stretch between his home and the American Legion Hall. Well, my mom and her boyfriend came home later in the evening, reported him missing, and the Ferndale police says, well, we have to wait about 24 hours to report a missing person. And it's like, for a child, you know, a 12-year-old kid, you gotta wait 24 hours? So Ruth and her boyfriend waited. Mark's classmates and teachers waited. Mike Stebbins, Mark's brother, he waited too. Then on the 19th, the bottom of the world just dropped out. Four days after Mark's abduction, his body would be found. A person walking his dog in a, a strip mall in Southfield. I think it was called Fairfax Plaza. Saw something against a short brick wall and he said he thought it was a mannequin. You know, he walked up and it was a small, a body of a small boy. That's Marnie Keenan, former Detroit news reporter and author of the book, The Snow Killings. <laughs> Fairfax Plaza is at the corner of 10 Mile and Greenfield in Southfield, Michigan. There were businesses, cars, people everywhere. This wasn't like a hidden away spot where no one would see anything, right? This was a pretty wide open public area. Right, yeah. Um, Wayne County Detective Corey Williams. His body and the bodies of the other victims were all dumped in locations where they could be found readily. He talked to you about anything in recent days? Or Definitely not. Just a normal activity of a young Happy to go lucky boy. Happy to go lucky kid. You never get no trouble in the way. Mark's lifeless body was discovered at Fairfax Plaza at 11.40 a.m. Police interviewed somebody who said they walked past that area, and they didn't see a body there at all. So whoever left Mark's body there did so during daylight hours, not under a cover of darkness. And back in Ferndale at the same time, Mike Stebbins was at school. Then the Ferndale police came to the school and gave me a ride back to my house. And I met up with my mom and her boyfriend and we just kind of had our little sorrow powwow together, you know? We don't know how he was asphyxiated. He could have been asphyxiated by somebody holding a pillow over his face. He could have been asphyxiated in a trunk of a car that didn't leak air, that uh, used up the air that was in the trunk of the car. He could have been asphyxiated in an airtight closet. The autopsy report came back on Friday the 20th. It showed Mark was molested and smothered. He had rope burns on his wrists, neck, and ankles, but no rope was found at the scene of the crime. He had several abrasions on the crown of his head. Police didn't know where Mark was held or even where he was killed, but they believed his murder happened somewhere other than this plaza. 
Aside from the obvious marks, there were a couple of details that did stick out to authorities. Uh, the body was bathed, he was clothed. Mark's brother Mike and everyone else was thrown by this detail. I know it's weird to hear, but Mark's body seemed to be cared for. Here's WJR News Director Dick Hafner again. His body was scrupulously clean. He was clothed and apparently well-fed. He was in the clothes that he last had on when he was abducted. And he was, if I recall correctly, found in a kind of a sleeping position. I, at 15 years old, I didn't know what to think, you know. I'm just a young punk out there, you know. It's like, why would somebody take my brother off the street and do such brutal things and murder him? And I beat myself up for a long time, a lot of years. And it's like, I thought to myself, well, what if I would have walked home with him? Would he have made it? Or who knows, would they have tried to get both of us? I have no idea. For the first time, uh, after the killings of the girls, after the killing of Mark Stebbins, real fear shot through the community, real fear uh, on the point of hysteria. Uh, I became involved with the Oakland County child killer case peripherally through my entire career. This is Paul Walton. He's the chief assistant prosecutor in Oakland County. He was just a kid at the time Mark Stebbins was killed. In fact, I was aware of it when we were moving from Detroit, Michigan to Jacksonville, Florida, because that is the time that Mark Stebbins disappeared and there was a newscast on. And I remember being in the car with my mother and father, brother and sister driving to Jacksonville, Florida. And my father commenting, he goes, this is going to be a big case. Paul Walton has become one of the foremost experts on the case. He's dug through all the files. He's quick to point out that some of the details reported should be questioned. Uh, there were kind of conflicting results as to what the medical examiner found at that time. A very early report indicated that there was the presence of seminal fluid, but a subsequent review of the evidence that we found, we could find nothing that indicates that any seminal fluid was ever recovered. This is a detail in the Stebbins case, which is still unclear. Was he sexually assaulted or not? Autopsy reports did state that he was sodomized. This horrible detail is important to the case because it helps investigators know who they should be looking for. But for family members of Mark Stebbins, like Mike, his older brother, the thing that is most important, the thing that's the most tragic, is that he lost his brother. How about you today? How much, how much do you feel like it affected maybe the path of your life, this whole event? Well, I probably would have been a whole lot better person working a whole lot more successful job. I did things I weren't proud of, and I could have had a good job and probably been retired by now with a pension if I didn't do some of the things that I was doing. Do you think that somebody out there still that's in this area knows what happened? It's possible. And 
They would have to be probably quite a bit older than I am because I was just a teenager when it happened. So after 43 years of me waiting, going on 44, it's like, you know, the detectives and law enforcement working on the case, all retiring, some deceased. It's like, I had information from one source that, you know, I'd rather say off camera, that when retirement comes, it's gonna go cold, cold, cold. Here's Ferndale Police Chief Donald Geary after Mark's body was found in 1976. No specific suspects. Uh, we're looking into a lot of background of a lot of people who have got backgrounds of uh, this type of offense right now. This interview was just a day after autopsy reports came back. Chief Geary wasn't able to find the killer. Nobody's been able to. We'll be right back. It's now December 22nd, 1976, 10 months after Mark Stebbins' murder. But in Royal Oak, Michigan, a normal family disagreement was about to end tragically. Jill was not in a good mood that night. She was not happy. 12-year-old Jill Robinson is at home with her mom, Carol, and her two younger sisters and stepfather in Royal Oak. Carol repeatedly asked her, what's wrong, honey, what's wrong? Well, Jill was not talking. And uh, they get home and started to make dinner. And um, Jill went up to her bedroom and Carol really wanted her to help make dinner. She wanted to help her by making biscuits because they were, she was scheduled to go to church that night. And Jill refused. I am Jill Robinson's sister, and that's how I fit into this case. What's the age difference between? Three and a half years is what we have going on here. I was nine and she was 12. Jill's sister doesn't want to be identified. I'm the one that was the last one to see her, and I had to go out to the shed to look for her bike because my mom was gone to work or something. And so I had to go out and look, and her bike was gone. So my mom called back and she's like, is Jill's bike there? And I'm like, no, it's not. It's missing. She's missing. She's gone. So we figured that she went to my dad's house, which was down, down the road on Woodward to Birmingham. And I don't know if she arrived or not, but she was last seen somewhere in the middle of Woodward. And I don't know. What's, what else am I going to say? I don't know. She packed a backpack, got on her bike, and then left. And that is the last anyone of it had ever seen of her. That's Oakland County Chief Assistant Prosecutor Paul Walton again. Her mother noted that she never arrived at her father's. Her father's was very quick to report. She never arrived as well. So it feels like it was um, forced on her or someone posing to be someone that they weren't, like a cop or something. I don't know. 
but like she would never just get into a car and take a ride. She had a bike. She was ready to go. So there's no way that she would not go all the way to my dad's. So I think that she went to my dad's, which was like five miles down the road, six in Birmingham. And she was last seen somewhere along the way at Tiny Tim's hobby shop. I don't even know if she made it to my dad's or not, or it was on the way back because he wasn't there, but it seems like she would have waited. If she got there, she would have waited. So I feel like she almost never made it there, and my dad never saw footprints in the snow or anything. On Christmas Day, Jill's mother allowed a news camera into the house. In the footage, the sisters are playing on the floor next to the Christmas tree. Presents are underneath the tree, unopened. The film slowly zooms into a tag that reads, To Jill, from Bob, Bev, Julie, and Rob. The two girls appear happy, not fully understanding the gravity of the situation. Everyone moves over to the couch, and here's Jill's mom, Carol. And I haven't seen her since, and I wasn't really very worried for an hour or so because she's very stubborn, and I thought she'll stand in the next yard and, and think about it and or go around the block or something, and then I thought maybe she went to visit her father. And so I wasn't very concerned for a couple of hours, and then I got in the car and drove around and tried to find her, and that's when I called the police. Has she ever done anything like this before? No, never. Jill's sisters look at the camera strangely. It's hard to imagine these girls trying to process what's happening. Do you remember that Christmas? Yes, totally. What do you remember about it? I remember like we couldn't open our presents. We didn't open our presents. We were waiting. She was gone. It wasn't even Christmas. I don't even know what I got. It doesn't matter. While the camera crew was in the home, Carol Robinson got a phone call. I thought somebody found you. It's okay. Just come down, Maxwell. She tells whoever's on the other end of the phone that they thought somebody found Jill. She wipes the tears from her eyes. Mrs. Robinson is especially worried because today, Christmas, is something that Jill was really looking forward to. She had saved enough money from her allowance to buy gifts. Gifts that still remain unopened. Author Marty Keenan. December 26th, the day after Christmas. Um, somebody driving down I-75 saw something red in the ditch, and it was Jill. I was there when the cop came to the door and said, your sister's been shot in the head and found in the middle of I-75 in Big Beaver. And I remember my mom just reacting and being, how do you react to that? So very sad and uh, okay, geez, um, hard. It was just like, she's gone and she's gone and they found her and shot in the face. My sister had premonitions that she was going to die. She knew she was going to die. She was born in the 12th month and died in the 12th month and she was 12 years old. So 12 is a special number for me that I hold sacred to my sister. Her bike was discovered behind a hobby shop in Royal Oak. Um, 
she was very early on uh, linked to this kind of growing investigation that was stemming from the Mark Stebbins investigation. Um, there were conflicting reports as to whether there was sexual molestation of her, but ultimately it was concluded that there was not. She was so awesome. She was just very um, sort of withdrawn, but we used to play Charlie's Angels and we used to play, we went to camp together. I mean, she was, I, how, how much recollection can I have? Because she was like three and a half years older than me, but, and that was nine when she died, nine and a half. But the whole thing is, um, yeah, we totally were best friends and had a lot of fun together. Jill's sister says she remembers Jill as a smart, clever but stubborn girl. She speaks of Jill with reverence and love. Sometimes she visits me in my dreams and it's only been about four or five and she'll come to me and she'll be just fine and she'll be just like sort of not 12 but maybe 20 but she um, maybe a little bit older than what she was when she died but she'll just like walk up to me and I'll be like Jill is that you and she's like that's yeah, me and she's fine. She doesn't give me a whole lot of explanation or doesn't blame anybody or doesn't talk about anything. It's just she's there and she's fine. One time she just wanted to meet my son and my daughter and so they were in my dream too. <laughs> and so, I don't know, she just wanted to just kind of contact me and be like, hey, I'm here, I'm okay. She's never asked for any revenge or any resolution. She's just there saying hi. Well, I was working that day, the day after Christmas, I think it was a Sunday in 76, and I was working at WWJ as a newscaster reporter, and I made a round of police calls, and I called the Troy police. They answered. I asked, anything going on out there that you could tell me about? So I taped a short phone interview with a lieutenant who told me that we're on the scene on I-75 near Big Beaver, right by our police station where we have found the body of a girl, and it looks like she's been shot to death. And our detectives are there right now, and we're trying to figure out what happened, who she is, and who killed her. Well, this was after, some months after, Mark Stebbins' murder. This was after the murders of three previous girls in the, in the same area in our suburban areas. This was another child who had been murdered. And after getting some details from this lieutenant as he would give them to me, I asked him, is there an Oakland County child killer on the loose? And he paused for a minute and he said, yes, there's an Oakland County child killer. on the next Shattered. I could not imagine being my parents and living through that hell. 
and he called and said, Christine is missing. And by this time they knew, they knew there was a predator out there. Uh, we love you, Tim. God bless you. Uh, stay tough. I have one other statement to those persons or person who may be with Tim. Uh, I don't know if you have children or if you want to have some, but please treat Tim the same way you would your own kid. Uh, talk to him. He's a talkative kid if you've spent some time with him. The clock was ticking and you knew that these kids were going through something horrible. I want to be sure to thank Mike Stebbins, Marnie Keenan, Dick Hafner, Corey Williams, Paul Walton, the Robinson family, and everyone else who made themselves available for this project. And again, investigators are asking, if you have any information, please call them and let them know about it. They have a tip line set up, and that number is 833-784-9425. Also, if you have a story about the Oakland County child killer and how it may have affected your life, your childhood, call us, let us know. It's 313-223-2237. Leave us a message. We can also be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Shattered Podcast. I also want to thank Anastasia Klimovitz, Tad Davis, and Joe Prince for their help with interviews. Zach Rosen, who helps edit the show, the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State, and Mary Wallace. And Dave Birch, who made it possible to record all of the film audio. Also, a very special thank you to Kelly Allen. Additional thank you to Kevin Dietz, who has helped us along the way not only know the story, but tell it. Our team also produced a five-part docuseries on this story, so if you want to see the old footage, which is pretty amazing, you'll find a link and a lot more information about the case at shatteredpodcast.com. Until next time.